Support for Market Foolery comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. It's Monday, April 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. Hey, me too. Hey. This is one of those we should have class outside kind of days. <laughs> it really is. It yeah. is yeah. so nice. So let's, you know what, let's bang out this episode so we can go hang out outside because it is a gorgeous spring day here in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, we're going to get to the big e commerce news out of India. And yes, of course, we're going to talk about United Airlines with the day that they are having. But I think we got to start with a shout out to the board of directors at Wells Fargo, which is a sentence I really never thought I would actually say. <laughs> but in the wake of the sales scandal last year, the board of directors at Wells Fargo is clawing back $75 million in compensation from two people uh, former CEO John Stump and Kerry Tolstead, who was the head of community banking. Uh, I I gotta say, Jason, I I was surprised by this. I was surprised that this happened, given the fact that Stump knew about the sales scandal back in 2012, didn't really do anything about it for three years, and then it came to light. I just assumed that there'd be the financial equivalent of a slap on the wrist for both of these people, and the fact that. They're getting $75 million taken away. Good for the board. On top of what they already had taken away from them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I mean, up to this point, you've kind of, I've kind of felt like they weren't really sorry that this happened. They were more sorry that they just got caught. Yes. Um, on the one hand, yeah, to your, to your point, you love to see a board take strong action like this. On the other hand, it does seem like, I mean, it, it at least makes you want to ask the question, what the hell were they doing all of this time, from 2012 up until now? Mm-hmm. How was this going on uh, underneath their noses? And and so I think it leads me to sort of my greater thinking in in regard to boards. Boards are essentially as good as an executive team wants to make them. I mean, at at its very core, you have to look at a board and think, okay, well these these folks are actually really. Just being incentivized to show up like once a quarter for a year, and just kind of nod and smile politely and agree and just say, "Hey, everything's going well," and they're getting paid like kings to do that. I mean, they're incentivized to not rock the boat because if they do, then chances are they may not be asked to serve on the board anymore. And I mean, certainly there's there's the financial benefit uh, they they get from actually serving on the board. So I I feel like a board can only really be as strong as Company's leadership wants it to be, and so I mean, I'm, I'm please understand. I'm not saying that all boards suck. I mean, I think a right. lot of boards are really good. Um, I, I think it is it is really one of those things though where you look you look at this thing. How in the world was this all going on, and it's now really just coming to light? And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do applaud them for for really taking such a bold move here, and um, hopefully. Uh, we'll see future leadership here with Wells Fargo be able to distance itself from this obviously very negative culture that's been going on for some time. I think they're trying to protect their neck a little bit in hindsight because I, I saw that the Institutional Shareholder Services, an independent firm, suggested that voters, uh, shareholders vote against 12 out of 15 board members in, wow. the, in the April proxy. Yeah. So, um, 
I think that a little, a few of them are like, hey, maybe we uh, claw some of this back, return to some good favor with the shareholders in hopes that 12 or 15 aren't voted off the board in a month's time. And to see 5,300 people get fired over five years from the same exact division and maybe not ask a question as to why. Um, I mean, it's only about 2% of Wells Fargo's workforce, massive company, about 268,000 people at the end of last year. But 2% of your of your employment and all from the sales team, and seeing those huge spikes in new accounts being signed up, over a million unauthorized accounts, I mean, some red flags there, or at least some things to maybe ask a question or two about, like, how are we doing so well? And then, right. and, the, and yet we're firing people. Um, so I, I think it's a little reactionary, trying to protect themselves a little bit, um, ahead, of, ahead of a very important shareholder vote for a lot of these board of directors members. Oh, I, don't th- I think both those things can be true at the same time. I think it can be the right thing to do, and it is... Oh, yeah, right thing to do. Absolutely sure, yeah. a level of self interest going on as well. But I remember when this story first broke, and one of the things that we talked about was the trust factor with Wells Fargo and how, like, if you're an investor, if you're an existing shareholder or a potential shareholder, whether you're someone like us or you're running a fund on Wall Street, one of the things we kicked around was how is Wells Fargo going to restore trust? In the investor community, and I think this is a move in that direction. Yeah, sure. I don't remember how much shares sold off the first time that the, when this originally happened, but yeah, if it happened again, certainly uh, some much more damage would happen to shareholder value. Yeah, I mean, I think the stock. <clears throat> excuse me. I think what happened to the stock was relatively predictable. I mean, it didn't seem like it really sold off all that yeah, much. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I mean, it's a huge company. Obviously, they have a stranglehold on the mortgage market, mm-hmm. and, and that's not likely to change. But I think that's probably one of the things that investors should at least be concerned with going forward: is that because they're going to continue to have the stranglehold on the mortgage market, and that, and there's no real control over that. I mean, we we just bought a home, and it, we didn't use Wells Fargo as our lender. But the chances are Wells Fargo is going to end up getting that mortgage to service it, and I'm not going to have any say so in it. Um, to me, it just you have to look at this and think. Okay, well, maybe, maybe really, I'd be maybe a little bit more convinced had had maybe Timothy Sloan not necessarily been uh, named the new CEO because Sloan was there during this whole time. I mean, he was the COO. He served as the CFO. Yeah. It's not like he's completely innocent here. I mean, there's no way he didn't know what was going on. He just he had to know something. You're saying Timothy Sloan doesn't have fresh eyes. Well, I mean, you know, I'm just throwing it out there for discussion. And I mean, maybe our listeners can deliberate and and send us their thoughts on Twitter and email and whatnot. But again, I mean I think this is a great move from the board. I'd personally be a little bit more convinced if they just completely cleaned house on the leadership side. I mean, I'm not saying that Timothy Sloan is Guilty of anything here, but the the perception is the reality in most cases, and and certainly the perception is that he had to have known something. The head of public relations for United Airlines, whoever he or she is, is having a tough day, and that is because, <laughs> as you've probably already seen by the time you're listening to this episode of Market Foolery, video has surfaced of a passenger being forcibly removed from a flight that was going from Chicago to Louisville. This was on Sunday. Um, Everything about this, I think, is bad for United Airlines because the backstory is this is not some passenger who was drunk or causing trouble. This was United overbooked the flight. They asked for volunteers to leave so that they could, you know, get four United employees to Louisville to service another flight. 
and they offered $400, and then they offered $800, and then they said, you know what, we're just going to have a computer pick people at random. So, a passenger who had paid for his flight got removed, and uh, Taylor, as you were saying before we started taping, uh, the aviation police who were doing their job seemed relatively unconcerned that so many people on that flight had their phones out and were videoing this situation. And I know this isn't going to hurt their stock today, but among other things, I think if I was another airline, I would be trolling United so hard with this for so long. I, I, I don't know. I, I think there could be some potential long-term trouble here for United, but maybe I'm wrong. It's unfortunate for them because it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't. It was the Chicago Aviation Police. It wasn't their uh, employees that apparently knocked this gentleman unconscious while trying to drag him off the airplane. Um, and yeah, the Facebook video I saw had been viewed 360,000 times. Yeah, and it wasn't a company's page that was liked 360,000 times. It was a regular citizen who probably only had a few thousand friends on there, but 360,000 views to, shows the virality of this video and uh, and how widespread it's become in less than 48 hours. Was it yesterday that this happened, or was it? This was yesterday. Yeah, so less than 24 hours, viewed almost 400,000 times on one person's account. Yeah, they're definitely gonna. See this on social media for quite some time. And it, you're right; it wasn't United employees who removed this guy. But I look at the underlying business systems that United put in place, and I think you know what? You're the ultimately it falls back on them. It points, it highlights how airlines overbook. In this case, yeah, they're not the only ones that overbook. Right, All of but, them do it. But yeah. in this case, they're overbooking. They're overbooking so that they can get employees from point A to point mm-hmm. B. And why are you stopping at eight hundred dollars if you're, you know, if you're trying to get people to leave a flight voluntarily? This is going to cost them way more than eight hundred dollars. Yeah, well, if you think that too, I mean, if you go go ten years, twenty years back to when this was something that airlines would do, and I think travelers probably assigned more value to that travel voucher back then than they do now, and I think a lot of that is because the way. The internet has just changed pretty much everything we do, from e-commerce to travel to banking. What what I think the internet has ultimately done is it's helped us realize uh, placing more value on our time in any in any scenario. You value your time more so today than I think perhaps we could have ten or twenty years ago because there was there were just not as many choices. And so when you get stuck on an airplane and they're trying to get people to you know to take off and 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 Take a travel voucher and take a later flight. I mean, it's okay. Well, yeah, that's four hundred dollars. I guess I could do something. You know, honestly, like it's such a nightmare going to the airport <laughs> and dealing with getting through security and then getting on the plane. Nobody likes flying on those planes and those little tiny seats. Uh, all of a sudden, I mean, United really becomes sort of. Any airline is going to have to look at that and say, well, maybe four hundred dollars is going to cut it. So maybe eight hundred dollars does cut it, and maybe there are a few people on the plane that will that will go ahead and take that. Uh, Take that offer, but but again, I think why in the world do they so consistently overbook flights? I mean, you have a fixed number of seats. It's right. not like it takes it's not like it takes a PhD to figure this all out. So I mean, obviously they do something where they're relying on some sort of statistical measure where it says you know how many people may not show up for a flight or how however many cancellations may be may exist and they can overbook by this amount but i mean i do really think that for someone i look at myself and i i am generally speaking about as apathetic 
uh, to any given airline brand when it comes to flying. I mean, I just am looking for a plane that's not going to go down, and I want a reasonable price. Yeah. And I want you to get me there quickly. But man, after this, I gotta say, I I don't think I would want to buy a ticket for a United flight because of this. I mean, there's just I, I don't see anything good that came of this, and, and I think that. This and I, there was the dress code thing yeah. that wasn't too terribly long ago either, which I found to be pretty absurd, honestly. Yes, they're just not doing themselves any favors. And in, and I don't know if you saw this, but in response to the whole uh, United flight not letting two young women on because they had leggings, uh, Delta Airlines was tweeted out something about how uh, flying Delta means flying comfortably, <laughs> even if you just want to wear leggings. Well, you know, it was hey, just like getting... total, totally. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I respect. I, yeah, you should go out in public and you should be dressed in such a way that is is not provocative or or questionable. But hey, instead of focusing on the dress code, why don't you focus on people that smell bad, right? <laughs> I mean, have you ever sat on a plane next to somebody that stinks? I, because I, that's offensive. I, I think that's going to be a tough one to sort of put into. <laughs> I don't a system. know. It's I mean, it's, well, they're both subjective. I don't think so. See, I think fashion is subjective. Objectively, you either smell or you don't. And if you smell, I don't want to sit next to you. <laughs> There's no way to. There's really no good way to. <laughs> Are you segue. transition out? There's out. no good way to segue into saying, "Hey, thanks to Rocket Mortgage for supporting <laughs> this episode of Market Foolery." When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. And as Jason points out, you want to work with someone who doesn't stink. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process, odor-free, that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information and get a mortgage approved in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So, whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. So, skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLS consumeraccess.org number 3030. The e-commerce battle in India is starting to heat up. Uh, Flipkart, which is an e-commerce startup in India, has raised $1.4 billion from Microsoft, eBay, and Tencent. This puts Flipkart's valuation at about $11.5 billion. Uh, part of the deal here, part of the fundraising in this round, involves Flipkart acquiring uh, eBay's operations in India. Um, uh, let me go back just a little bit to give some context here, because last June, one of the stories we talked about on Market Foolery was Amazon investing three billion dollars to their operations in India, and a few of the dozens live in India. So at that point, I, I asked any of our listeners in India to sort of share their experience with e-commerce, and got some phenomenal. Uh, information back from folks. Um, Flipkart is one of those brands I was completely unfamiliar with, and it, it was actually started by uh, some guys who used to work for Amazon in the United States. Um, Jason, these are, you know, even if you take into account the valuation of Flipkart coming down a little bit. Um, these are serious backers in the Absolutely. likes of Microsoft and Tencent and serious eBay. serious backers in a in a very serious market. I mean, this is this isn't something that is going to materialize over the next two years. I mean, I think really you got to look 
at this from the perspective of the next decade. Um, and, and certainly, it seems like Flipkart has established itself as a pretty credible presence there, based on the feedback we got from our listeners last year. Yeah. And so, I think that really, the one thing that would give me pause when it comes to Flipkart is essentially, I think the clock is ticking. And I think it's moving a little bit faster for Flipkart than it is for Amazon. And so, Flipkart essentially, they're, they're a little bit more under the gun and needing to raise capital and really building out this business. I think they have, obviously, founders have a good idea of, of sort of what Amazon is all about and how, how Jeff Bezos has, has built that business, why he's built it the way he has. And so I would like to believe that they are focused on some of the very things that he's been focused on primarily uh, awesome customer service and then low prices as well. Um, the thing is, Amazon is, is already so successful and so big and has really already done it here domestically. I mean, that's what they're doing, is they're taking what they've done domestically and they're, they're just doing it elsewhere. And so we're seeing the European operations, for example, uh, coming online and we see that operating profit starting to, starting to strengthen there as they continue to realize more return on those investments. And we're, we're watching them try to do the same thing in, in markets like China and India and the, the, the Middle East acquisition that they just made there. And so I think that is just where the biggest challenge for Flipkart lies is, is that Amazon has a little bit more luxury here in the form of capital, in the form of time, obviously the know how. I mean, they've, they've learned a lot from their, their successes and their failures. Um, but it does seem like Flipkart is onto something here. I mean, when you're raising that kind of money and your company is valued anywhere between ten and fifteen billion dollars, you're doing something right. Absolutely. With your competitive advantage, if you're just trying to beat Amazon against Amazon, like I, don't, I think you're running up against a wall there. Amazon's already number two in e-commerce in India, and yeah. they've only been there since I think 2013. And five billion from them versus a few billion from these other companies. Little smaller bet for Microsoft because it's only um, you know they're chipping in, whereas Amazon is putting their own money into this and they're they're doing it on their own. And I I, I think that it's a great market to get into because you saw I think it was November of last year when uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi removed the 500 and 1,000 uh, rupee notes out of circulation, which was I think as I read it was about 86 percent of cash in circulation. So. The country's not yet set up for a cashless society, but they're certainly trying to move in that direction. And uh, one and a half billion people, and you've got only about forty million that have used online online uh, e-commerce. So huge market. But like you said, it's not going to be a couple of years where you really start to tap into it. Yeah, and you're going to see, I think, like we've seen with Mercado Libre, which is basically sort of like the Amazon of Latin America. Um, Mercado Libre, the the founders and leaders there had the wherewithal to really invest in this early on, which is why they've been so successful. Um, and, and I think that uh, they're they're discovering the sort of the tailwinds of not only the growth in e-commerce, but also an emerging middle class. And I think that's something we should expect with India over the course of the next decade mm-hmm. and beyond too. Is this sort of emergence of a, of a more powerful consumer as time goes on. Um, and with such a massive uh, population there, I mean, the, the financial implications could be huge. I don't think it's a winner-take-all thing. Um, I mean, I think Amazon's probably going to succeed because they tend to succeed in whatever they do. And I think that Flipkart is wise to uh, be making as as big and bold a bet as they are right now in, in that market because these they tend to, they seem like they're long-term thinkers like Jeff Bezos is too, which is why I'm sure they're not looking at this as 
number one, they're not looking at this like a, a winner-take-all scenario. Number two, I'm sure they're looking at this thinking, how do we build this business to succeed over the course of the next decade and beyond? Because that's really what this is all about, is consumer behavior over the course of the next 50 years. And, and I think that uh, e-commerce is proving uh, itself to be uh, where it's at. Two more interesting notes that we got from our listeners that I think probably point to areas that these two companies are working on. One was that Flipkart is better at apparel, and we know that certainly even here in the U.S., Amazon is trying to do more with apparel. So that's clearly something they're going to be working on. Amazon in India appears to be doing better with third-party sellers. And if you just think about the vast network of third-party sellers that they have on the platform here in North America, that's already paving the way towards some success in India as well. So, presumably, Flipkart is working on that as well, trying to get better at third-party sellers. Absolutely. And that's, that is a great opportunity that exists, because you have to look at these businesses beyond just the consumers like, like us. I mean, these are, these are great platforms for other sellers to be able to basically take their small businesses and um, focus on growing the business without having to worry about investing in all of that sort of infrastructure, inventory management, uh, internet platform, mobile, whatever it may be. I mean, Amazon has proven to be an, uh, an excellent third-party provider, and so that's certainly a big opportunity as well. Two housekeeping notes before we wrap up. First, thank you to Scott Newhouse, one of our listeners, for stopping by today. And bringing some donuts in the process. Couple boxes, yeah. yeah we'll take it. Well. So you know what? Given the nice weather, I think we take our donuts <laughs> outside. Uh, and second, uh, tonight, ten o'clock on AMC, Better Call Saul returns, hey the now. season three premiere. So that's where you'll find me at ten o'clock tonight. I hear the season is chock full of goodies. We're going to get a lot of backstories on a lot of uh, a lot of that Breaking Bad goodness. Very excited. Be fun. Thanks for being here, guys. Cheers. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.